Hello, I'm Kate Chabot. Welcome to SITREP, your weekly look at the big issues in defence and world affairs. One month into Ukraine's counteroffensive to take back territory from Russia, President Zelensky admits progress is slower than desired. But why? The density of the minefields that Ukraine is having to push through are probably stronger than expected. We'll ask a former British tank commander how you deal with mines on your battlefield, and Mike will explain what other factors are in play. Also on SITREP, nine years since the rise of Islamic State, British soldiers are still part of efforts against the terror group in Iraq. We'll hear from some of them. The dismount team providing sort of any extra information they can in the background. They're looking out for any potential threats, any potential information they can gather. And as the Defence Secretary wades into a row over an army officer's online post about transgender people, what are the do's and don'ts for the forces on social media? Really, it's just the same rule as it is to all kinds of behaviour. Issues can be caused by allowing soldiers to go to a pub, for example, but you can't ban people going to a pub. You just have to say, look, this is the rule. You have to use your judgment. Sitrep with Kate Chabot and Professor Michael Clark. So, Mike, a month into Ukraine's counteroffensive, how do you assess progress so far? Well, uh, the Ukrainians are certainly stretching the Russians sideways, as I keep saying, trying to break their shape. And they're having some success now around Bakhmut. The last uh, 48 hours, uh, Klishkivka to the south of Bakhmut looks as if it's fallen to the Ukrainians. And that's important because they've got the high ground. And again, in the south, uh, Odekiv, which is a, it looks like a main access of attack, although it may turn out not to be the main one, but it's the main one at the moment, moving south towards Tokmak. And again, they've got hold of the high ground, most of it at Robotin. This seizure of the high ground is important, but the enemy gets a vote and the Russians look as if they're bringing a lot more forces forward at Kremina and Svatove, as it were, north of the Ukrainian series of attacks, as if they're going to launch their own counterattack as well. And that at least will give the Ukrainians something to worry about. So if you look at the map, the Ukrainians look as if they're beginning to penetrate in two places. And the Russians look as if they might begin to try to, as it were, outflank that in Kharkiv with their own uh, offensive. That's where we are now. Well, you heard a moment ago the Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral Tony Radikin, telling MPs the minefields that Ukraine is facing are probably denser than expected. And UK Defence Intelligence tweeted this week that Russia appears to have used many more anti-tank mines than laid down in its military doctrine. It says the slowing of Ukrainian progress is then being used by Russia to attempt air and artillery attacks on Ukraine's armoured vehicles. So if you're commanding a tank and you get into a mine, field. What do you do? Well, let's bring in Justin Crump, a former tank commander and now CEO of the risk and intelligence consultancy, Sibylline. Uh, Justin, thanks for joining us. Let's just start one step back from the question I just asked. If you're commanding a tank, how do you know you're getting to ground with mines? Is it just intelligence? Do you have to keep checking? How do you do it? I'm glad you rephrased the question because my immediate response was, you know, as a tank commander, you really don't want to end up in a minefield if you can possibly help it. So if you've ended up in it, it's, it's getting a bit too late. But yes, intelligence is, is part of it. But obviously, mines are not always marked nicely with flags and laid out behind wire so you can see exactly where they are. Um, in fact, in this, in this conflict, virtually never. They're very easily hidden. They can be dispersed, of course, by artillery, which the Russians have been doing. They have specialised minefield layers. So you're relying on intelligence, but to some extent, when I was a reconnaissance commander, we, we did used to joke that uh, your burning vehicle was there to mark the edge of the minefield for everyone else. And so unfortunately, 
all too often you do end up with forces running into the field, but you hope it's your reconnaissance force that's out the front, that's scouting, that is the first to encounter the obstacle and, and gives you warning that something's there. Now, in southern Ukraine, in eastern Ukraine, pretty much the Ukrainians are assuming there's always mines and they're rarely wrong. In fact, there's so many, sometimes the Russians are running onto their own mines because they don't know where they are. So you assume everywhere is mined, you're in that kind of territory. What are your options apart from just slow progress? What do you do? I mean, it is slow progress. Every obstacle can, of course, fundamentally be overcome by engineering vehicles. It's comparatively simple to cross a ditch, even, for example, if you're not being opposed, if someone isn't shooting at you, if they can't see you. The problems you have when you don't have control of the air is that actually the enemy's using drones, the enemy's observing you, they're calling down artillery while you're trying to do things. So you have to really try and create a security bubble to get through something like this effectively. And within the Western way of war, within the NATO way of war, we can do that on quite a large scale. For the Ukrainians, that's much harder. So they've gone back to a, their tactics that they're most familiar with from fighting since 2014. And that's small operations taking that very thoroughly. And that's one of the reasons why you're seeing advances of a tree line, a field. And when you're taking part in that clearance, how do you do it exactly? What are the options? The best way, and you, you've seen the Ukrainians using mine clearance charges. You may remember sort of giant viper and giant python for those people who've spent time in the uh, Cold War type training back in the day, that effectively puts out an explosive laden hose that goes out a few hundred meters and will detonate most mines in the path of an advance. We've seen the Ukrainians using those, not always to clear mines, but also just to test for the presence of mines. So sometimes they'll fire a couple of those. If they're not seeing mines detonate, they're assuming that field is probably clear and then they're driving across it. Unfortunately, mm. mines move around a lot. They don't always go off. You then plow a lane through. Again, very simple if no one's shooting at you. But if people are shooting at you, you've got to protect the engineering vehicles. They're obviously right at the front at this point. And actually, as a tank commander, quite often it was your job to literally park tanks right next to the engineering vehicle as it advanced and provide a physical protection to it so it couldn't be engaged because you were in the way. And when you have a crossing like this, obviously the engineering vehicles are the, the most precious asset. I mean, it really is a, a tremendously hard operation. Mike, uh, Russia has had a long time to get these mines laid. Given the relative inactivity over the winter and what seems like a long wait for the start of this counteroffensive, has Ukraine made a mistake by allowing Russia that long? Well, I, I mean, they couldn't really do anything about it because the, the timing of their offensive was determined by how much equipment they were receiving and how long it took them to get used to it and train on it and so on. So I'm sure, you know, they've gone as early as they logically can, and that's later than they would have wanted to. But, you know, as Justin says, the, the issue is really a complex one. And there's a, a classic case of that on the 8th of June. I mean, the Russians make great play of this on social media. But on the 8th of June, the 47th Assault Brigade and the 33rd Mechanized Brigade Brigade lost 25 vehicles in just a few minutes and it was a classic case where they were halted within a minefield and because it slowed them down then Russian attack helicopters and artillery just made mincemeat of them however there weren't many casualties because their western vehicles Leopard 2 tanks and the Bradley M2 fighting vehicle they lost 25 of them um, but they protected the crews and almost all of the crews got away so I think the Ukrainians have learned a lot from that and Justin, is there any piece of kit or technology that we could give to Ukraine that could help them deal with these minefields faster? I mean, there's a huge amount of thought of that. But on the example Mike gave, for example, it looked like the Ukrainians were trying for a more stealthy breach where they used the clearance vehicles, the mine plow engineering vehicles. 
they didn't use the explosive line charge first. And I think they have learned from that. We've seen a lot more use of that. But in general, there is, there is no quick, easy fix for mines. If you look at demining operations in countries around the world, they go on for decades. It's immensely hard to find things, especially once they've sunk into the ground. And if you imagine places like Kherson, where you've had the flooding, of course, that's washed mines from where they were placed. It's very, very, very difficult, frankly, to get around this any other way than by brute clearance. Some thought about uncrewed vehicles, but again, on the front line, they're still vulnerable. Clearance of mines in contact, I'm afraid, remains a highly challenging kinetic military operation with no quick fixes. So good to have your thoughts, Justin Crump. Thank you very much for your time. Mike, is it just the minefields or do you see other factors holding back Ukraine's progress? Yes, a lack of air superiority. They don't have enough air power. And that's, that relates, of course, to the minefields, because as Justin was saying, you know, when minefields slow you down, then you're vulnerable from the air. You're vulnerable to artillery, but particularly you're vulnerable to air attack. And all armoured vehicles, however good they are, even the, you know, the American Abrams M1 tank is vulnerable to air attack. And so if you don't have air superiority over your own forward lines, then that's always going to be a problem. And here we have the, you know, the Ukrainians are trying a major offensive without air superiority and they're having to improvise for that with ground-based air defense but it would be so much better for them if their air force could actually patrol meaningfully over their own front lines and make a difference and then the other thing of course that they they don't have yet and we'll see is um, real combined arms technical competence we just don't know yet have they been able to put together in a few months what it takes Western armies years to do, which is to put all these things of armor, infantry, artillery, air power, such as it is, into a combined arms approach. You know, we have fingers crossed for that, and we're going to find out fairly soon, I think. And you said before this counteroffensive has to make an impact for political reasons as much as military ones. A month in, can we make any judgment on its success or failure? No, not yet, but we will soon, because at the moment, the Ukrainians have only committed about a third, between a quarter and a third of their force. And what they're now calling the Big Nine, the nine armoured and mechanised brigades have still not engaged yet. So the Big Nine have still got to go into operation, and it looks as if they probably will quite soon. I mean, the, the Ukrainians can't leave it too much longer because they're, they're burning summer all the time. So they will, I think, quite soon try to make the most of the gaps they're opening up now in Russian lines. But I think we'll see the big nine in operation within days or a, a week and a half, two weeks at most. And then we will see whether they are capable and able to, as it were, win a battle dramatically in such a way that it changes the way we think about the battlefield situation in this war. And again, I'm, I'm making no predictions for that because what they're trying to do is extremely hazardous and extremely difficult. News, discussions and analysis. This is Sitrep. It's almost nine years since British troops went to Iraq to help train the country's army for the fight against the Islamic State terror group. And although you don't hear much about it these days, British troops are still there. It's part of Operation Shader and has gone on longer than Operation Telic, which started with the invasion of Iraq in 2003. Sitrep's James Wharton is a veteran of Optelic and the first British journalist in almost five years to spend time with British troops in northern Iraq. And he's just back home and joins us now. Uh, hi, James. Uh, give us a sense of the scale of the British presence there right now. 
Well, the British contribution in northern Iraq right now is just one part of a much larger international coalition. And that large coalition is working on a mission known as Op Inherent Resolve. And, and the British contribution to that, as you've just said, is Op Shader. It's a company-sized group of infantrymen, and that's about 90 soldiers. It is active, nonetheless, and most significantly, it's out there on the ground in a region that is potentially dangerous. And what are those soldiers doing, James? Well, I think when we talk about Op Shader, often we talk about the Royal Air Force and we talk about airstrikes against the Islamic State. There was one very recently, for example. And I think sometimes those activities get a lot of the headlines. I know there are personnel on the ground who are in green, working for the British Army, who sometimes feel their work's perhaps slightly overlooked. So what they're doing, the British have traditionally been involved in the training of um, soldiers in northern Iraq, typically um, Kurdish soldiers as part of the Peshmerga or the Iraqi army. That's now changed. There are those activities going on, but they're being conducted by other nations. The British army, the infantry soldiers I was just referring to, and that's the 1st Battalion, the Royal Yorkshire Regiment, to use their new title. They're very proud of their new royal status. They are offering force protection. And what that means, Kate, there are important people from across the coalition, senior officers, officials, who need to go out into Iraq to meet other important people. And when they do that, when they go beyond the wire, typically every day or so, this company strength from the 1st Battalion, the Royal Yorkshire Regiment, they provide a sort of armed escort and they take these VIPs, if you like, to their meetings and they just make sure they're very safe when they're there and obviously they make sure they're safe when they're in transit. So on the ground, there is uh, a British officer uh, responsible in North Iraq, and his name is Lieutenant Colonel Walters. He's the chief of staff of the advisory group North, the advisory group being his team of advisers that our British soldiers are protecting when they conduct their business. Well, we're part of a global coalition of 86 nations that have invited into Iraq to really complete the defeat of Daesh in Iraq and Syria. The battalion here sends out a force protection to support the advisory mission uh, and that's what the team here predominantly contribute to whether that's on vehicles or whether that's in helicopters so it's a sort of brecon-esque security detail i, I, I mentioned to um, the people that were looking after us our minders that it felt like they were sort of close protection guys and, and they were quite quick to sort of put me right this is slightly different this is this is like giving someone their own tiny army to go out on the ground you know these soldiers are armed to the teeth and obviously very trained so um i got to spend a bit of time with uh, a couple of the guys as they just got back from a one such patrol and their boss was lieutenant richie he's about a year out of training and this is his first operational deployment as it was for many of the soldiers under his command in my multiple basically we've got the drive teams which is a commander and then a, a driver and then on the other side of that there's the dismounted soldiers which are basically the force protection element so the driver is basically focused on he's, he's the master of his vehicle um, the commander's you know the one sort of his second set of eyes on the road but responsible for navigation uh, comms to the rest of the vehicles and uh, sort of back to base and the dismount team are providing sort of any extra information they can in the background they're looking out for uh, you know any potential threats any potential information they can gather um, and then when we arrive on scene, um, you know, sort of the drivers and the commanders will part the vehicles to secure location will be over to the dismounted team um, to provide any sort of force protection for, you know, the people we're escorting around. So, yeah, basically that's what we've provided, an armoured force protection service. And James, he talks about assessing for threats. What is the security situation they're facing? 
Well, another commander on the ground likened it to post-Good Friday Northern Ireland. And what he meant by that was there is this group, the Islamic State, who have essentially been defeated. But in the area where they're conducting these operations, there are malign factors underground from uh, the remnants of the Islamic State. And as I said, that they're in the region the soldiers are operating. Just last month in Kirkuk, which is just 60 miles away from the British base in Erbil, two members of the Iraqi army were killed in an attack by ISIS. So that just gives you a, a flavour of the, the environment these soldiers are, are going into every day. And of course, any operation like this requires logistics support. So who else makes up the unit? Yeah, well, the British have to be as uh, self-sufficient as possible. Now, there is a bit of a caveat to that. The British base, where one Yorks, one Royal Yorks, are based right now, is within a larger base, OK? So they're, they're in a base called Camp Zorbash, and that sits within a much larger international coalition air base at the old Erbel Airport. There is now a new Erbel Airport. And within that, that wider facility, as you would expect, anybody who's deployed uh, to Afghan or to Iraq in the past would know that, you know, when coalition of nations go out and do things, they, they, they take pretty much everything they need. I mean, it's got its own, it's got its own runway, for example. But while I was in Camp Zorbash, which is the British base within that base, they've got their own medical officer and he has a team of medics and they do sick parades every morning. And of course, the vehicles that these soldiers are operating in are fairly non-standard. So they're, they're working in up-armoured civilian vehicles that are, you know, about $100,000 each. And they're giving their, their 19, 20, 21-year-old soldiers the keys to drive these VIPs around in those really interesting vehicles. And, of course, their REMI detachment needs to be responsible for keeping all those vehicles in ship-shape condition. Although there's loads of wider logistical support and there is an airbase there, within their confines of their small camp, they try to look after themselves as a single unit. And on a personal note, James, what was it like to be back in Iraq after all these years? Well, it was it was in some respects emotional. I mean, it was quite a long journey out there. So I had you know plenty of opportunity to just sort of reflect on the fact that I was going back to Iraq um, 16 years on from when I deployed there as a soldier. But the truth is, once I was on the ground, I just didn't recognise the country. There were some things I absolutely recognised, like the, the unmistakable heat and the, the constant hum of generators, which seems mm. to uh, follow the army around wherever they go. And, and, that, and that's obviously for good reason. But um, on the ground, you could tell that, that there is investment in Iraq. There were a few skyscrapers being built in Erbil, which I thought was a really interesting telltale sign. So it was a great experience. I'm really pleased to have gone back and to see that now all these years on. And it was really interesting to see what British soldiers, you know, not too dissimilar to me back in the day, to see what they're doing now in, in that same country. James Wharton, really good to talk to you. Thanks very much. Thank you. Mike, I mentioned at the start, we've had soldiers in Iraq on Opshader for longer than Optelic. It feels a bit like a never-ending commitment. Yes, and in a way it's changed um, because to begin with, it was uh, Opshader was, as it were, a war against Islamic State, who, remember, had taken a lot of territory. And then it sort of morphed into a bit like a counterinsurgency operation. And then it, it's morphed into a counterterrorism operation. And of course, when you get to counterterrorism, the question then is, well, is that better to, to run as a forward presence operation? Are you trying to do something about the terrorists in theatre or do you worry about 
the effect on your country and you make it a home-based intelligence-led policing operation to keep, in this case, Islamic State's influence out of the United Kingdom. That's a sort of bigger strategic question. And interestingly, what James was revealing there is that it's morphed again into what I would call defense diplomacy. The, the, the force protection role is a role that somebody needs to play. There'd be a lot of confidence in the British playing it and is very good for the image of the British Army. And so when you think about Opshada, it's called Opshada, but it's gone through about three different iterations. And it's now down to this relatively small iteration on the ground, still with some air power involved. But it's really now a sort of somewhere between a, a forward-based counter-terrorism operation and a defense diplomacy operation, which is why it's lasted so long, because uh, the problem itself is going to be with us for a very long time. Now, the company behind Facebook and Instagram has just launched a rival to the much-troubled Twitter. It's called Threads, but if you are signing up, think before you post. A row about a social media posting by a senior reservist officer has grown so large the Defence Secretary has been drawn in. Colonel Kelvin Wright included a quote saying, men cannot be women. He says he was then forced out by an investigation which was an attack on his honour. The Defence Secretary took to Twitter to say that the investigation stemmed from army social media policy and had nothing to do with Colonel Wright's views on transgender people. Colonel Wright was, according to the Defence Secretary, encouraged to stay. So what can or can't service personnel post online? Louise Jones is well versed in the rules from her seven years serving as an army intelligence officer. There's really quite a lot of rules and regulations because social media can present a a variety of problems. You know, first and foremost is threat to personal security. You know, if you're giving away your locations, where you live, uh, maybe a unit you're serving with on somewhere innocuous like Facebook, um, that can actually raise your own personal risk level. So there's a a real lot of guidance uh, raising awareness of that particular aspect. You know, a classic one that everyone's also made aware of is uh, your social media use could also reveal what the British military is up to, where they're deploying, who's in command of what unit, all sorts of information that's really useful for hostile actors. What's not necessarily highlighted as much is the risk to your personal reputation. If you say something that perhaps comes out a different way to what you mean or, you know, you're using an account which isn't representing the image that the military would like to project and how that can then cause a backlash on you. Um, I think particularly the younger generation are are sort of hyper aware, um, but perhaps those who are new to social media might might not be as aware as there can be things like backlashes generated. But on the whole, everyone is sort of very aware that you need to approach social media very carefully. And why do the forces get a say on what you do on your personal social media accounts? So a lot of it is to do with the fact that, you know, when you sign up to serve, you're not just another citizen, you're not just another person, you do um, give up certain rights when when you sign on the dotted line to join the military. And so whilst um, the military on the whole is very sympathetic to allowing you to express yourself in the way that you see fit on social media or, you know, things like that, there are still rules, you know, there's rules on, you know, how you dress at work, there's rules on whether you can have a beard or not. And, you know, similar to that, there's rules on what you can post on social media. Um, and really, that's because uh, people people are watching what you're posting and they can misuse it and, and cause much, much wider damage at a strategic level than what you mean. So it is very important, therefore, that the British military do have certain restrictions on what they're able to do online. And how do the rules affect reservists? Because effectively, they're a serving member of the forces some of the time and a private citizen the rest of the time. 
Yeah, and this I think is a difficult one um, because the principle is as a reservist that unless you're mobilised, you're essentially just another member of the public. And it's only when you're mobilised that you're then subject to, to rules and regulations. So, you know, referring to beards, you know, when you're not mobilised, you can have a beard if you want. Um, but when you are mobilised, no beard. So it's the same with social media. However, obviously with social media, when you're making a Facebook post, it doesn't distinguish between whether you're mobilised at the time or after or before, which means that it can be quite difficult, I think, for a reservist to, to really understand exactly where they stand. And I think it's an interesting one, you know, so for example, as a you can be a, a politician, an elected representative as a reservist, as many are, like the Foreign Secretary James Cleverly which means that you can do certain activities as a member of the public, which when mobilised, you absolutely could not do. So it's sort of a grey area there that um, I think can be quite difficult for reservists to understand what they can and can't do. And when you were serving, how aware were people of the rules and how clear do they actually seem to you? I think like a lot of military rules and regulations, not many people know the exact letter of the law. You know, there's quite a few out there and it, you know, it can be difficult to understand the exact nuances about, you know, when you can and can't have a picture of you in uniform or on base, things like that. But, you, you know, you're, you're regularly told and given training on the dangers of social media. So everyone was very, very aware that you, you have to be careful online. Really, they, they're, they're well aware if they've been paying attention. Are there actually rules um, governing the use of social media for the armed forces? Because the army refers to social media guidance. Yeah, and I think that's because they can't necessarily have a rule for every single possible um, thing that you might post. I think a classic one that applies to a lot of behaviour is the service test, which is, you know, has has your behaviour, you know, likely to or brought the service into disrepute. And that's sort of a rule of thumb that's applied to all behaviour. So and that includes social media posting. Um, and really, it's, a, it's therefore down to a judgment call to say, you know, hey, can I can I tweet this particular opinion? Um, and I think, you know, the distinction should be made uh, much more strongly about where you have a uh, social media account that identifies you as a member of the military uh, and therefore what you can and can't do with that account. Having said that, though, I think there are, um, you know, a lot of military uh, personnel who are openly military on their accounts and they're, you know, they're almost influencers, if you like, and they do they do the world of good. They really spread a really positive message and, and those kind of accounts should still be encouraged and not clamped down on for sure. Uh, wouldn't it just be easier, given uh, a lot of this is down to judgment and there are grey areas, for the forces to advise people just to stay off social media? I, you know, I can see um, the reasons why some people would say that, but really social media is, is very important these days, particularly for the younger generation and just staying in touch with friends and family. Um, and, and social media is also a really big purveyor of news, of, of communities, things like that. So I think um, there'd be a huge loss if, if people were made to stay off social media. Really, it's just the same rule as it is to all kinds of behaviour, right? You know, uh, lots of issues can be caused by allowing soldiers to go to a pub, for example. But you can't ban people going to a pub. You just have to say, look, this is the rule. These are the guidelines. Um, You have to use your judgment because as a member of the armed forces, you are trusted to have that judgment. Former Army Intelligence Officer Louise Jones. Uh, Mike, tempted as I am to ask you about your tweets. We won't. We have a couple of important bits of business to wrap up briefly. Um, Let's start with the Chief of Defence Staff talking to the Defence Committee about the long-awaited refresh of the Defence Command paper, the UK's military master plan. Admiral Sir Tony Radican told them the aim is still to publish it in the next couple of weeks before Parliament breaks up for the summer. But this was the really interesting bit when the Conservative MP Tobias Alwood pointed out all the new money announced in the budget is already spoken for. 
So can we confirm that the cuts that we saw to our tanks, to our aircraft, to our heavy lift, to our personnel in the army, none of those will be reversed? Uh, that, that's um, my understanding in terms of the Defence Command Plan at the moment. Mike, has he given the whole thing away? Uh, in a sense, yes. I think he was being honest about that. And the fact that, you know, this defence white paper was due to come out in March, then May, then June, then July, and now maybe, we hope, before the recess. I was hearing last night, privately, that it will come out before the recess. But it is obviously the subject of an enormous row between the MOD and the Treasury. And I suspect, I can't, I don't know this, but I suspect that the Treasury is simply saying, we will not issue it on the basis of the figures that you are giving us. I, th I think, you know, that there is, a, there is here a, a real, um, you know, immovable object and an irresistible force hammering away at each other behind the scenes. And we'll see how that works out in the next two or three weeks. And what's going on at NATO HQ? Jens Stoltenberg, who insisted he didn't want a fourth session to his term as Secretary General, has just agreed to stay on for another year. Yeah, and that puts off the argument because the, the arguments have been, I mean, Ben Wallace was a very good and credible candidate and he would have done it very well, I'm sure. But he's been ruled out of the picture because France, Macron as France, has said, we don't want a Secretary General from who is not an EU national. It has to be somebody from the EU. And of course, all, all eyes are turned on uh, Ursula von der Leyen, uh, who's the president of the uh, commission at the moment. Uh, she wasn't a very successful German defence minister, but she is a person of, of great resource and she is, she's gaining a lot of support in the job she's doing now. But, you know, I think there's something else behind this. And what lies behind it is that for all that we have contributed on Ukraine and for all that we try to take a political lead on Ukraine and try to make a difference, our European partners, they see our Navy, they see a sort of Brexit Britain trying to be a global Britain. They look at our, our defence forces at the moment, and the fact is they don't take us seriously anymore as a military player on the central front. And that's the truth of it. Thank you, Mike. And thanks to all of our guests. We'll have a busy sit wrap next Thursday, the day after a NATO summit. Simon Newton and Michael Clark will guide you through what has and hasn't happened in the big get together of all the leaders and explain what it all means. For now, though, from me, Kate Chabot, thank you for listening. Bye bye. Mm -hmm.